Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. I am Lucia Matuonto, and welcome to the Relatable Voice podcast, a talk show where my guests and I talk about relatable everyday situations, books, and the environment we live in. Remember to subscribe and follow the podcast on social media so you can be notified when a new episode is available. Let's begin! Welcome back to another episode of the Relatable Voice. Today, the RV is in Israel to speak to Dr. Shoshana Levin. Shoshana is a child psychologist and autism specialist who has authored an autism casebook for parents and practitioners, The Child Behind the Symptoms. So my dear Shoshana, welcome to the RV. Thank you so much, Lucia. I'm, I'm curious where we're going to travel to. Yes, it's a beautiful ride because we are in Israel. So, That's right. Talking to you from Jerusalem. Oh my gosh, I can't believe that we are in Jerusalem. It will be right. a special trip. Mm-hmm. So you are originally from Midwest, and That's you've right. been living. Yeah, you've been living in Israel since 1992. That's right. For for 30 years, that is correct. Yeah, 30 years. And is there anything you miss about living in the U.S.? Well, that's that's a very interesting question. Um, actually, actually, it's I don't miss any things about. Living in the United States, I, I do miss some people in the United States, you know, friends and family. And also, Lucia, if we're going to get international and travel here, for many years I lived in Vancouver, Canada, and I have some wonderful friends there that I would love to see, but it's the other side of the world. Um, but uh, I love living here in Israel, here in Jerusalem, and I'm uh, back to my spiritual roots here. So, so life is good. We're good here. I understand you completely. And you know, going to Israel is on my bucket list. And I okay, think well, we're gonna have we're gonna have coffee, Lucia. That's what we're gonna do. We will. I can't wait to visit this magical place. It's fascinating, it really is. And Susanna, you are a child psychologist and an autism specialist. Right, yeah. So, which is something I'm so passionate about. So, how did you come to specialize in autism? Well, it, it was kind of an interesting journey. Uh, it's been an interesting journey, Lucia. I was always interested in autism, even when I was in my 20s, at the very beginning of my career. And in whatever capacity I was working at, even a long time ago in my 20s, there were always some autistic children, and I found them fascinating. I, I felt that I had an, like an affinity for them. I was sort of drawn to them. And at times, I was having some success 
in reaching them. So that was always very interesting. The turning point came for me actually in 1992. In fact, I was just finishing a doctorate in psychology at the University of British Columbia in Canada. And uh, I had the good fortune to be awarded a postdoctoral fellowship from the SHRC organization in Canada. That means the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada for two years of research in autism. I'm much more a clinician than a researcher. I am not a researcher, but if SHRC offers you a postdoctoral fellowship, you do not turn your nose up at it. <laughs> and I had already approached the Feuerstein Institute. I'll talk a little bit about that too as we, as we move along here in, in, in your beautiful van. Um, if I got the shirt, could I come and work at the, at the Institute? And Professor Feuerstein um, and said yes, which I was really thrilled about. And so I started doing the research project when I got here in the fall of 1992. Now, Professor Feuerstein, maybe I should spell it, the, the, um, the Institute and the professor are actually, they, they're world-renowned. World but if you've never heard of them, you're saying, how come if they're world-renowned, I never heard of them? So if people want to look it up, it's Professor Reuven Feuerstein, F-E-U-E-R-S-T-E-I-N. Unfortunately, he passed away at, in, in his 90s uh, several years ago. At any rate, I, in 1992, I had been there a few months at the institutes trying to organize a research project, and that's not my forte. And, and the professor called me into his room, and he's said it was obvious said, what are you doing here and I said well I'm here to do a postdoctoral research project in autism as you know and he said I want you to start working with the children who come here and I finished the research project it wasn't the most brilliant research project in the world I did it I fulfilled my obligations and I spent the next 25 years at the Feuerstein Institute assessing and treating uh, children who came to the Institute basically specializing in autism. So I've been, but not working conventionally. We'll talk about, I know we'll talk about that later. Working really outside the box in all kinds of ways, just right outside the box. And it was just really, really wonderful work. Um, so exciting to see the children change. And, and that's why I wrote an autism casebook, which is not a dry kind of thing. It's stories to bring their progress alive. So to share with people how working outside the box can, can really help these young children. So it was just, it was an amazing experience. People were coming from all over the world to the Institute, children with all kinds of uh, developmental issues. And I was uh, focusing on the ones that came with an autism diagnosis. So there you go. That's my life with autism so far. So you've been working with children with autism for 25 years? No. Oh, well, actually more by now because I left the Institute in 2017. And one of the first, then I started to write the book. But, you know, I'm, I'll still, you know, if, if parent, when parents contact me, I'll still assess and consult and so on. But I'm not doing it at the Institute. I'm doing it. Mm. Uh, in my own uh, private practice. So yeah, we're, we're Im been immersed in it, absolutely. And Susanna, I'm specialized in children with special needs. And in my opinion, working with children of 
the autism spectrum is very rewarding, especially when you see progress and develop a close relationship with the child. I, I, I completely agree with you. It can be very challenging work. It can be hard work, but it can also be very gratifying. And it was just so wonderful to see these children change. And, and the parents, too, because we were also supporting the parents and counseling the parents and advising them how, do you, how to play with their child, how to talk to their child, how to bring out the child's strengths, because we were working from a, a strength-based model, not a symptom-based model. Very gratifying. It is. And your book seems to focus on how we access diagnose and treat autism in young children. So what do you mean by the child behind the symptoms? The child behind the symptoms. First of all, just another, a couple of words about the book. As I, as I started to say, the second part, the first part of the title, it's a long title, right? An autism casebook for parents and practitioners, the child behind the symptoms. So the casebook part, was also important to me because I really, I start with stories. I do not start with theory, you know, just bam, 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 case stories, because I want the reader to get a sense of what the change felt like and what I was actually doing in my office to create the conditions of change, like to bring it alive. It is not a, a dry theory of textbook. It's, it's, it's meant to bring it, bring the work alive and, and to sort of illustrate how it's done. The child behind the symptoms. Well, that's kind of a phrase that's guided my whole career, Lucia. Um, it's actually relatively easy to see symptoms that appear, important word, appear to be autism. The child has poor eye contact. The child is not talking. The child may be doing some hand flapping. That's not even, you'll pardon me for saying this, it's not really a huge problem, a huge challenge to see symptoms. But if we wanna really help these children, we have to see a whole lot more than the child's symptoms. We have to see the child's strengths. We have to see the potential for change. It's, it's a question that, it's a question that, is, uh, that, that really has gripped me in my work because my colleagues and I, Working by this, working with this inspired, brilliant Professor Feuerstein, we were we were inspired by his not only optimistic but completely, really, really positive view of, of human beings and their capacity to change. So we were always looking for the child's strengths underneath the symptoms. And at the Institute, we call them islets of normalcy. You know, some people, when they hear the word normal, they go, oh no, there's no normal anymore. Well, yes, there is. Yes, there is. And if you feel more comfortable, you can call them islets of typicality. But um, there, was, there was kind of a, a vision, I would say, at the Institute that because we are human beings, we are not um, lower animals, so to speak, there's a person deep within behind any surface presentation, behind cerebral palsy, behind learning challenges, behind Down syndrome, 
behind selective mutism and certainly behind the symptoms that appear to be autism. So uh, the child behind the symptoms is always what we were looking for and trying to develop. That's what we were doing. I really like when you say that you use uh, out of the box way. Oh yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll I'll tell you a little bit about more about that later. It had to do with using play rather than symptom checklists to find out what makes this kid tick. Where are the child's strengths? And the play was unbelievable because in addition to being a child psychologist, I'm also trained as a play therapist. So knowing the power, the developmental power of play, I began to use it with these so-called, I would say, autistic children. Often they were had been misdiagnosed as elsewhere, as I discovered. But uh, it, it was it was amazing work. It was just just amazing work and uh, very gratifying. Yeah. And what is the most question you receive from the parents of the children you treat? I know they are they have many questions, but what uh, the most the most common question I would say in the beginning when I'm introducing to our out-of-the-box, non-conventional way of working. Um, when they realized we weren't just going to check off symptoms, we were going to actually get engaged with the child and involved with the child and bring the child out. Um, will my child be all right? Will my child be normal like any other child? And the related questions, it's kind of all the same kind of question. Is there hope? Is there reason for hope? Is my child changeable? And I spent a lot of time educating parents of, about the pitfalls of the way autism is uh, ordinarily assessed and helping them understand in many cases, not in all cases, why their child, why to my best of my understanding their child had been misdiagnosed as autistic, what the real underlying, we talked about what the real underlying problems are, and then give the parents what guidance, what to do, you know, how to talk to your child, how to play with your child. It's not enough to take your child from therapy to therapy to therapy. You as a parent have to know, what do I do? What do I do when my child does this, that, or the other? So... Parents needed a lot of support. We gave them a lot of support. And I think so many parents responded well. The other question, which is a whole other thing, is how, how can I help my child? So that's why we're, we were giving them as much coaching as we could, you know. <laughs> lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. Ch -ch 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 
Chumba. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And you said something that is very important is misdiagnosis. So oh, boy. Misdiagnosis seems to be more and more common, especially specifically when it comes to neurodivergence. Actually, you have to explain to me why you don't use this word. So <laughs> and you, <laughs> and you mentioned you use an unconventional model to see underlying problems in children who were misdiagnosed. Can you sure. tell us more about that? Oh, wow. If we had about four hours, I could tell you lots more. But in, in five minutes, let me see if I can, if I can uh, okay. do a respectable job of it, Lucia. Um, it was my experience that a huge number of, a huge percentage of the children who came to the Institute who had received an autism diagnosis elsewhere, other clinics, other hospitals, other specialists, it was my experience that a huge percentage of them had been misdiagnosed. And I asked myself why that was happening. It didn't mean they don't have problems, by the way. It didn't mean they didn't have developmental problems. They did. It wasn't like they were, everything was completely ticking along. There were some issues, definitely. Um, but they'd gotten swallowed up into this great big autism diagnosis. And it, it's my understanding and my observation that the, the, the formal diagnostic criteria for autism that are in the DSM, that's the big manual Bible of the psychiatry and, and psychology, not where we worked, but in most places, the diagnostic criteria for autism used to be very tight and very few 80 years ago when autism was first more or less introduced mm -hmm. to the psychological community. And now the DSM talks about a huge range of social and communication problems from very, very mild kind of manifestations of a social problem or a communication problem to extreme. Well, the minute you have criteria that are elastic, you have an elastic diagnosis, which I think is not gonna give us any kind of clinical specificity about what is happening with a child. It is a huge problem in my eyes because it's become a one size fits all diagnosis. So I was seeing children, for example, with all kinds of other developmental problems that had fallen into the autistic diagnosis basket. For, mm -hmm. I can tell you some of the common ones, some of the common problems that I encountered with children that had hearing problems from a very young age. And the, the assessor, whoever had been assessing this child had ticked off, you know, communication problems, social problems, that had not taken into consideration mm -hmm. the impact of hearing loss. Something that a fancy word here for some of your listeners, oral dyspraxia means the mouth and lips and tongue are not, and the brain are not hardwired together. 
So the child may be really communicative and really, really, really want to talk. And just like you might try to wiggle your ears, but you can't, they can't produce sounds. There is treatment for oral dyspraxia. We have a wonderful uh, specialist, at least one in Israel that I know of that I would refer people to, and he could help children get, get those first words out. Um, children with emotional problems from very light to very serious were, were coming to my office having been misdiagnosed as autistic. All kinds of other things. I'd like to tell you how we kind of uh, distinguished what helped me. Once I realized, once I realized that the di I would get, well, I must tell you, I would get referral information <clears throat> before the child steps into my office. The child is autistic spectrum disorder, according to the following criteria of the DSM, which were listed, dot, 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 that he, the child had. And you know what I would do? Mm -hmm. I would say, I want to meet this child and I want to find out who he really is because these diagnostic criteria are so stretched out of shape that he may or may not be autistic and people are not paying attention to when a symptom is represents genuine autism or what's called autistiform, autistic-like. But what I did that was different uh, with the enthusiastic support of the professor, since we were looking for strengths and we were looking for the capacity to change, was to get on the floor and play with them. Now, how do you play with a child who's kind of cut off and quiet? There are wonderful ways. And through Professor Feuerstein, I met one of the originators of what's called DIR floor time, developmental, individual, and relationship-based floor time play that you meet the child right where they are. It might be a tickle game. It might be doing bubbles. It might be sort of launching one of these rotary helicopter things and the child goes to get it, get it and doing that kind of interactive play, I learned so much about whether the child was genuinely cut off or whether they were needing more initiative on the part of the environment to reach into them, particularly using play, sensory play, touch, sound, music, peekaboo, that's play. Sitting, jumping in front of the mirror together. So that gave me so much more important information. And then the parents, of course, were in the room. So I'm saying to the parents, did, did you see that, how your child just smiled? Did you hear your child make those sounds when we were jumping in front of the mirror? You can do that at home, mom and dad. And if you do that at home, then he'll make more sounds and you can repeat those sounds and imitate those sounds. So we were working very, very, very differently. I was not using any symptoms checklist. I, in fact, sometimes I used to say to the parents uh, somewhat cynically, I said, you know, the cleaning lady could walk in here and identify the symptoms. I said, I want so much more from your child than, than labeling his symptoms.
you know, I want to see some changes. Let's go. <laughs> uh, that's so amazing. And, and we cannot keep doing this one size fits all. We are all different and we cannot just follow. Yes, absolutely. Oh, I so agree with you. That's right. These, these labels can become quite toxic. And then we see the child, instead of seeing the child behind the symptoms, we see the label and we see only the symptoms. And it's, it's a huge loss, you know, a huge human loss. It is. Really. Yeah. And your work as a child psychologist is quite interesting because you mentioned you don't work with children according to conventional psychology. No way. I love. No way. No, no, no. And you also mentioned you work creatively, as you were saying, you sit and play with the kids and you use like a sense of optimism. So can you tell a little bit more about that? You use like you treat in a ludic way. I don't know if I can say this in English. Yes, yeah, sure. But would you like me more to, to comment on the... Maybe, can you give an, an example or a story that you can tell us that... Oh, gosh, I've got so many stories. I, I'll, I've got one, I've got one, I've got one for you. I was um, working with a little boy who was, by this time he was five, When he first came into my office, he had been diagnosed elsewhere as autistic. And uh, he had some language. I wasn't sure he was, I, I didn't really consider him autistic. He didn't have any of the stereotypical flapping and things like that. A little bit, you know, his personality was a, a little bit rigid, but more than anything, he seemed to be stuck and his, his language was stuck. He had some language. His eye contact wasn't bad. I really didn't go along with the autism diagnosis, but he had some developmental challenges. And uh, he would uh, look at something and say, chair, 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 carpet, 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 table, table, table. Well, he made a lot of changes, coaching the parents and giving them advice and so on and urging them to keep him, not to put him in a special needs uh, kindergarten because I knew he had a lot of potential keep him integrated and so on. But one day when he was five years old on a, on a, um, uh, a follow-up visit, he came into the office and his parents, of course, are in the office with him. Mm -hmm. And it was clear to me that he was, he was stuck. He had something in him had regressed. And I just knew, I could just feel that all of his, that, that all that language progress he just made was in there. It was in his little tummy. It was just stuck. So I have a mirror in my room. And I thought, this calls for energy. So I, he stood, I placed him so that he was standing on the carpet facing the mirror. I'm, this is an example of how play just can work wonders. I'm standing behind him. And he was a heavy guy, <laughs> a heavy five-year-old. And I'm picking him up. And I'm counting to picking him up from under the armpits. And we're both facing the mirrors. Why? So he can have eye, better eye contact with me as we both look into the mirror. And I'm counting to 10 as I'm picking him up, one, two, three, all these jumps. And still, I'm, I'm thinking this action, surely this is going to 
jumpstart. This is going to unblock him. It's going to unplug his uh, language. And initially it didn't. So I tickled him and I don't like tickling children. Uh, it can be aggressive. And I tickled him as gently as I could, but at the same time, I wanted him to feel it, turned him upside down, slung him over my shoulder. And he went, ah, when I, when I, so the plug came out, then I brought him down on the floor again. And again, we jumped. And this time he's, he was counting. In other words, the language had, be, had become unplugged, unclogged. We'd, un, we'd unclogged the drain. We cleared the drain really through the action, through the play. And the next 10 jumps, he was going one, two, three, four. So it was really quite amazing. And then he, I knew that he was back from wherever that regression had taken him. So play can be very, very powerful um, in terms of bringing out those islets of normalcy of the child on which to build. And it's, um, it's enjoyable. Yeah. But it can also be hard work because you've got to be real, real, real attentive to little tiny details of change. Yeah. And if you miss them, you'll only see the symptoms. So you've got to be really, really tuned in to something else, something deeper within the child. Well, I, I got some good spots. Does that, does that give you a taste of it, Lucia? Does that yeah. give you a taste of the work? Yeah, actually, my approach was always for them to do exercise in a more playful way. So it wouldn't... Absolutely. Like, yeah, it's not like they are working. It, it feels like it's just play. If a child is resisting play, in other words, most children just engage in play. But what's, what's special about using DIR floor time that I combined with Professor Feuerstein's belief in modifiability, I sort of made a a sandwich and it worked, it worked, it worked that, that combo worked. Um, what's what's uh, special about using the DIR floor time is you don't kind of wait for the child's initiate, initiative. The practitioner initiates and moves into the child's world and takes every single little response that they do and builds upon it. It's, it's, it's just, it's pretty, it's different from the play therapy I learned originally, but for me, it was a short hop from play therapy to DIR floor time. And it's just, it makes big developmental changes. It really does. Mm, yeah. I used it to assess. Usually it's used to treat. And the difference here was when I saw that the DSM criteria are just stretched beyond, imag beyond imagination, I began to use DIR floor time activities and, and interactive play to get a good functional description of the child and understand what was happening. Much more informative than a diagnosis, much more informative. Mm -hmm. So there you go. So that's how I spent the last 30 years. You <laughs> spent 30 years making an amazing work. I'm so honored to have you here, Dr. Shoshana. Well, you know, I must say, I also had incredible colleagues and I had an incredibly inspired and uh, brilliant and courageous mentor in Professor Feuerstein, the late professor. 
and also feel an enormous debt of gratitude to Serena Weeder and the late Dr. Stanley Greenspan, who created floor time intervention and who have, uh, you know, Serena is still teaching it all over, all over the world, basically. And it's just, it's terrific. It really, really, it works. It reminds me about my kids, my patients. Right, yeah, I know. I know you've worked with children too, you know, in your own professional corner. Yeah, absolutely. So, so now, is there a message you would like to leave to our listeners today? Yeah, I think so. Um, I would say if there are parents of a child who's been diagnosed as autistic, that there is hope. Uh, I would encourage parents, I'm not, I'm not trying to sell it, it's just for me the fast track to getting into a hopeful, hopeful prognosis for a child has been floor time strategies. So I would encourage parents, if they, ha if they haven't had any experience in DIR floor time, to read, to go on to the um, ICDL website and look for the ICDL directory, practitioner's directory. And by geographical area all over the world, they, they could find someone, mm -hmm. uh, prefer preferably someone at expert level. Interesting enough, I'm not at expert level. I've just done it for years. I should go back and get all my, get all my tickets. But uh, I think that's an important message. I guess if there are practitioners listening, I would encourage them to, re to explore further some of the pitfalls of the current diagnostic procedures that, yes, they, they can give you a label because of the symptoms, but they don't go beneath the symptoms to find out what's causing them. And it's just so important to do that. It's just so, so important. It is, absolutely. I agree with you a thousand. <laughs> a hundred, a thousand. We're on the same page. <laughs> now we are. And Susanna, where can we find you online? Where can uh, we find your book? Okay, you um, pretty easy. Um, my website is Shoshana11fox spelled like the animal, uh, shoshana11fox.com. And on the, we the website, I'll give you a whole lot of information and also has my email address, which uh, parents and practitioners are, are welcome to write, write to me. And uh, I'm on LinkedIn, Facebook, and the book, An Autism Casebook for Parents and Practitioners, The Child Behind the Symptoms is easily accessible Amazon and Barnes and Noble and all those other uh, wonderful sites book depository and so on so it's very accessible yes and I'm also happy to tell our listeners that you are participating in the RV book fair 2022 and they can find you also on our website www.relatable-media.com so they will be able to see your book shout out our discussion panels your articles your article and also some answers your work is precious you are changing many people's lives 
We're trying. I just want to say thank you very much for being here today. And I want to say thank you, Lucia. It's been a pleasure. Really enjoyed speaking with you on the panel with Shelley. And uh, and this evening talking to you, it's great. Thank you. And I, I will see you in Jerusalem. Yeah, again. Okay, good. Okay, we've got a date. Yes, it's the day. Right? I'm supposed to, I'm looking for a red and white, I'm looking for a red and white van, right? Yes. And it's written RV. So Absolutely. You. Absolutely. <laughs> thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe so you'll be notified when the next one is posted. Please rate this podcast and share it with your friends. Thank you for listening. And remember, relationships don't exist. Relating does. Until next time. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.